They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Talk music. Guess who's back? Guess who's back? So what's up, y'all? We here. It's episode five. Damn. I mean for it to do all that, but whatever. (laughs) We here. It's episode five. It's your boy, Craig Seymour, taking you on this black gay excursion into the world of popular culture. You know me. I'm a vet in the game. You can find my writings from the 90s and beyond on rnbeing.com. I'm the author of Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. Um, also the author of the memoir, All I Could Bear, about how my experiences as a stripper hoe in grad school helped me become a journalist. And I am the author of, um, of the novel, Who's Your Daddy?, which is basically about um, three generations of gay men, gay men looking for love. You might be within a particular generation, looking for love. So maybe you should check it out. But anyway, and then I'm the also the author of the forthcoming, of a forthcoming, I mean, March 26th. Set your calendars, put your, um, get your Apple watches on your alarm mode, whatever, however y'all do that. But anyway, my book um, on Janet Jackson called Special Critical Meditations on the Life and Artistry of Janet Jackson. We're going to put it down. And like I think I said before, this book's written by Mixtape C. I'm taking it back to my beginning days and just doing it raw and just really, you know, just um, just saying what needs to be said, right? Because you look at an icon like Janet, you look at her, somebody took so long to get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You just look at, like, how easily she was forgotten and during a certain period of her career. And then you're just like, things need to be said. And I'm going to say those things. So um, anyway, that's out March 26th, just a few days before the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Please pre-order the book now. It's on Amazon to pre-order. For some reason, I don't know why, but you can't pre-order the... um, you can't pre-order the paperback version of it online. So there will be a paperback version of it, and that will be available like probably that exact same day. But for some reason, you can't pre-order. I don't understand the shit. I'm just a black author, just a black businessman trying to make it work. And just, just got to hang with me for a while. So anyway, I'm proud of myself that I'm back for the fifth um, edition because y'all know I'd be dropping shit. You know, so, you know, but your boys, it's a new year, um, not really so much anymore. But anyway, you know the point. It's a new year-ish, and your boy's trying to be on his diligent, consistent shit, just trying to grind the same grind instead of grinding 50 gazillion grinds. I'm just trying to grind one way and um, just try to make it happen. So um, we'll see. You know, and again, the more you um, listen and continue to share, the longer I'll continue to do this, and we'll just keep um, rocking together. But I just want to let you know at the beginning of this, just um, just really how um, 
you know, important. It means how important it is to me that you listen and that you are sharing and things like that. And just the combos we be having and stuff. It's just really, um, it's really, really nice to put something out into the world that I genuinely enjoy doing. And, and it speaks to the most, you know, truest, most authentic part of myself. I'm just talking, y'all. It's like, what time? It's one o'clock in the morning. So I'm just, you know, here, just me and the mic. And, you know, so to be accepted in such a raw state, it's, I, I appreciate that. So just so you know, and now, you know, a black man always wants to improve himself if I can, always will listen to criticism if it's coming from the right place and said in the right tone, in the right way, when I'm in the right mood. But anyway, um, I, people have been saying that, you know, when I do the podcast, I'd be making like 5011 references to every this and that. And people be telling me like they damn near drove off the road or fell off the treadmill or, you know, missed a train stop trying to write down the references or put some shit in notes or just whatever. So starting today, um, I'm inaugurating. Um, ooh, I don't even like that word anymore. I have to try. I'm thinking something new. I'm launching. Um Basically, so each time you have the Craig's Pop Life, um, hear the Craig's like Pop Life podcast. Well, I um, have a website that's craigspoplife.com. Um, that shit's simple. Like if you listen to Craig's Pop Life podcast, and I need to tell you to go to craigspoplife.com, you have more problems than any of my links can fix. But the point is, I'm gonna post the episodes there. Um, and then just put all the links to all the stuff I randomly, so you don't have to worry about listening along or whatever. Some stuff you care about, some stuff you don't care about. You just know whenever you get around to it that it's there. And I guess most of the times you can listen to it on, you know, if you're listening to it on Anchor, you can be looking at whatever's on the thing. And don't ask me, I don't know what is going on with iTunes and their little podcast and like they just being, um, I don't know what they being, but they're being very velvet ropish about the shit. Because I'd be looking on iTunes podcast and be seeing all sorts of shit that like, okay, well, what is this? And why are you giving me a hard time? It's like, you know, sometimes it's like you being a line um, at a club and then you finally get in and you see some of the other people there. And you're like, why these motherfuckers get in? How, who they know? Because these motherfuckers ain't cooler than me. So that's how I'm feeling about iTunes these days. So um, whatever. And trying to go through my notes here. Oh yeah, I have something really special for you um today. As you know, you know, just working on the Janet book and just doing things, just kind of like trying to archive my stuff. A lot of my music um journalism stuff is archived at Indiana University Archives of African American Music and Culture. Humble brag, but no, for real. But um a lot of my stuff I was very much a part of sort of like I don't know what, even what you want to call it. It was just such like a great cultural movement of black gay men, like in the very early 90s, just people, just poets and everything like that, and filmmakers. I mean, you know, some of the names like Marlon Riggs with Tongues Untied and like um, Isaac Julian with Looking for Langston. But, you know, those were like the top, tippity top echelon type people. Um, and like my friend Essex Hempel and stuff like that. And but I was, you know, I would be, I would review a lot of just any kind of black gay poetry compilation or book of essays and all of that kind of stuff. And none of that stuff's in print. 
No, you can't download it on Kindle. It will not be available on your Audible. So I'm kind of trying to archive. And, you know, we lost a lot of these voices. And we all know why we lost a lot of these voices. So I'm kind of thinking, as I'm doing the Janet thing and everything like that, I'm kind of trying to figure out what I want to do with this trove of... um, Damn, I'm just coming up with all sorts of words I don't normally be using. But anyway, with this um, collection of writing, because it's not just, you know, when I go through it, it's not just about me. It's like I'm reviewing somebody's little small poetry book, you know, some black gay poet from Baltimore and his experiences, but that's no longer around. You know, it's not just about preserving my writing. It's just about preserving the names and everything. That's a long ass way to say all this, but whatever. I was friends with Essex Temple and um back in 1992 I did it um I guess it was 92. I wrote an article. His first mainstream book was coming out. He had had he had put out his own book self-published and his first mainstream book Ceremonies um was coming out and I interviewed him for The Advocate. And, you know, we were talking about a whole lot of stuff and everything, as one did and does. But um, one thing I just found interesting when I was kind of going through, because I was kind of listening to listening to some of the stuff, because it's expensive to be um, your little TDKs, your little Memorexes and stuff like that. It's expensive to get that shit digitized and get it sounding right and everything like that. You know, like when you listen to my Janet interviews and my Mariah interviews, those, that's dollars you're listening to. Cause, so, you know, I'm kind of speeding through a lot of tapes that I have to see what's worth um, digitizing and what, you know, I'm just going to drop off at the front steps of the Schomburg and just be like, y'all deal with it. But um, one interesting I, I found, um, you know, because Paris is Burning, the movie uh, is just such in vogue now, you know, with Pose. And it's, I think, largely because the movie is finally available. Well, not finally available, but it's so widely available on Netflix now. It's really entered I mean, the movies had a number of different lives, but it's like into a whole new life. Um, and the time when I was having this conversation with Essex, it was right around the time that it had made it strange. Because I saw the film like a number of times. First time I saw the film, it was sold out, but only because there were like five chairs in the whole screening room. I don't even know that it was a real theater. I think it was like, you know how they used to do back in the day? They just put up some kind of screen and just... You know, somebody got a V, somebody got a VHS player. It's one of them big ass VHS players. You know, um, big as a coffee table, and they drag it in. And, and all y'all remember those projectors? It would like be three lights. It'd be like red, green, and blue or something. But somehow it projected into real life pictures. I'm going on. The point is that's how I first saw it. So it had that first life of just really on the underground. You just had to know and stuff like that. It might not even been finished, to be honest with you. It might have been something that like Jenny Levinson and her her people were just kind of trying out and stuff because I lived in DC at the time. So it was that was very much like in the circuit of just how certain cultural productions would just kind of come through you know and like I said I was friends with Essex and I was friends with a lot of people in the community so people would just like hit me up and be like but nobody hit nobody up at the time but they would have they would have put their fingers in one of them rotary ass phones and you know how you put your finger back in another one they would have called me and told me I needed to get my ass to the screening so that was the first round that I saw it and then you know, just continue to get accolades. And all of this is probably in a matter of like a year or two years or something. But then it kind of made the gay um, 
and the lesbian and gay film festival circuit. So then now it's like at a legit theater. And so then, you know, went to see it with that again and everything like that. Because, you know, you couldn't be rewinding shit to get a good line. You heard a good line. You, it had come and gone. So all the girls were out trying to really, you know, nail down the good, the good, good lines that are in the piece. And so then that was happening. And, you know, just there was a lot of gay film that out at the time and it was very very popular and getting great reviews but that kind of seemed like it would just be it you know but then just in the made like most major cities have their own film festivals you know a dc film festival whatever so then it moved out from the um gay and lesbian film festivals to the main film festivals so then i saw it again and then you know there was all this buzz that it was going to be a theatrical release but the problem was that all the music in there, especially like Cheryl Lynn and all that kind of stuff got to be real. It was going to cost so much to license that, that for a while there were a lot of problems with that. But finally, you know, they figured it out. The film got a wide release, cut to however many years later. I'm not doing the math, but you get the picture. It's on Netflix. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to share that conversation I had with him um, about Paris is Burning that was happening at that particular time, you know, in the moment. Because a lot has changed in terms of the reception of the film. And I'm definitely going to digitize these conversations so you'll get a lot more from them and in better quality in the future. But I just thought this was kind of nice to share. Um, so to follow up, because the last when last we spoke, hold on a sec, I need some. Y'all, I'm drinking a Diet Coke, but um, and I don't know if you tried that Diet Coke blueberry, the blueberry acai. That's good as I don't know what. But I've been reading all these articles that like that just link diet sodas to all sorts of crazy wildness, but not even the diet sodas. Like there's all sorts of research that just drinking carbonated drinks like fucks your shit up, like makes you gain weight and just all this kind of stuff. So I'm easing off the carbonation train. But um, like I said, it's one eighteen right now, so it ain't happening tonight. Um, so I just want to follow up with the Grammy show a little bit. Um, but first of all, just thank y'all for just the um, just the discussion from that. Like, I mean, just to be able to, I mean, I think this is the thing that the internet is bad for a whole lot of things. But the great thing about the internet is that it really does bring people that live all over the place, don't even know each other or know each other that well or know they like certain things and enables them to connect. Because I was just like, when we were, and you you know, a lot of people, you know who you were if I was having a conversation with um, you about something like freestyle or talking about like the Tina Marie, talking about, um, um, damn, I can't forget, oh, Emerald City. Um, I mean, I just, I would be, I would be thinking to myself like, you know, what I would have given when I was like a teenager and I was the only person like in my whole, you know, cypher, you know, anywhere, whatever in my circle that liked this type of music. And I was like, what I wouldn't have given at that time to um, to be talking to somebody about this kind of stuff. And, you know, and it still feels just as good. You know, it still it feels good, like talking about the stuff because it is. um like I said, I spent most of my life not being able to talk to people about it. And, you know, usually about freestyle, even though I was a music writer, wasn't nobody trying to, like, what, what was I going to write a free? I mean, nobody was trying to, any of the places I wrote, nobody was trying to write a thing about freestyle or anything. And, you know, kind of at the heyday of freestyle, it was kind of pre my 
music writing because my music writing kicked in like around maybe 96, 97, you know, so whatever. It was all in what it was. But, um, and the reason if you missed the Grammy show, we were talking about freestyle because J-Lo mentioned freestyle and I was saying that it would have been a lot better use of her talent um, and her industry clout to do a freestyle tribute than to kind of give us some sort of weird Vegas review version of a Motown tribute. But then I started realizing I left some people out, you know, and I'm, and you know, like I said, I'm freestyle to the bone. So I was like, okay, because I don't think I mentioned Brenda K. Starr. And not only was she just bad in her own right, but I mean, just the MC connection alone. So um, like I said, I haven't gone back to that particular part, but just in case <laughs> I needed to say her name, Brenda K. Starr, um, Tina B. A lot of people don't know about Tina B that much, but um, she was married to Arthur Baker, who was one of him and um, John Robbie. And they were like some of the seminal people around that kind of electro hip hop sound. You know, they're the um, people that behind like Africa, behind like, um, I think that's Planet Patrol. Well, anyway, Soul Sonic Forest, like looking for the perfect beat, you know, all those kind of records, Planet Rock and all that kind of stuff. And see what happened was those kind of electro hip hop records that were done to rap, that's then suddenly people tried to, and people started singing over them. And then, you know, it softened, softened a bit over time and it got more of a Latin influence. And that's kind of how Latin freestyle was born. But, um, you know, it begins with those kind of hard electro um, hip hop records. So anyway, Tina B was married to him and um, she had a great song called Honey to, to a Bee. And that was one of those early, you know, hip hop records. I mean, early um, kind of, yeah, I guess y'all know what I'm trying to say. It was one of them early type electro singing records. And um, so that's pretty dope. And then La India, I couldn't leave her out, even though I think she found her footing more in house and kind of the stuff she was doing with Matches at Work and River Ocean, um, Rivers Ocean. Was it Rivers Ocean? I don't know. That sounds like a man's name when I say it like that. Whatever, whatever name she did, Love and Happiness under that. Um, but I did love um, the record she did with Jelly Bean, Dancer's Dream, Mirage. So um, I had to include that. So I did not want to leave them out. And then I started to realize something else. And then I was starting to realize, you know, well, of course, I was thinking of the Latin freestyle thing because J-Lo. J um, but, you know, before it kind of became sort of a marketing term, Latin freestyle, and before for like the um, sort of I, the prototypical kind of um, conventional singer. The music was kind of a younger um, Latina woman. You know, there were a lot of black people in creating that freestyle sound, both, you know, singing on the records, behind the scenes, writing the records, producing the records. And a lot of the fan base was um, black as well. So I was like... How I'm black and a freestyle fan, and I'm erasing the history of black folks and freestyle. Because let's never forget, who brought Lisa Lisa into the limelight? That was full force. All them black the last time I checked, right? Um, so, that said, and y'all know I'm a lister. Y'all know I like making lists and stuff. I had to give y'all a good top five 
Black Divas of Freestyle. Again, you'll see, you'll find the actual songs and stuff all um, on the website. And you know, I'm dramatic, so I have to be in reverse order like that. But I'm just going to run through some. I hope this brings back memories for some people. I hope it um, turns other people on to things. But at number five, had to give it up to Joyce Sims. Now, Joyce Sims, she really put it down, like all in all, lifetime love, come into my life. And again, it's these people that before the sound became sort of um, solidified as one thing. I mean, she was a really kind of an eccentric singer. She had kind of, um, you know, this jazzy kind of phrasing, almost staccato wording. And um, it was kind of bizarre, but that was... That was when the music was in the experimental phase and stuff, and she really did her thing. And she was one of the rare artists to actually have some crossover R&B appeal, um, excuse me, particularly overseas. So got to give it up to Joyce Sims at number four. At number five, God, yeah. and then, but at number four, also have to give it up to Shannon, because Shannon really, she started the kind of electro hip hop pop shit when you're talking about crossing over top 40 and stuff. Cause let the music play was that record. And it was that record for like a year. You know, that's one of the records that back in the eighties, you know, it had, you heard it at the club, you heard it thing. And like, you know, it was one of them records back in the day. Okay. So it would first just be out on a 12 inch, right? Cause it was just a dance record. It didn't have no picture of nobody. It had these, um, red and white stripes like an emergency thing because it was on emergency records so then you had that so then you plan it out like that and then you know it gets into the 45 territory and you're at the record store you're like damn they got a 45 let the music play okay okay and then slowly you see a video and then you hear word of an album and then you know what felt like uh, 30 years later you finally get give me tonight you know but that was the kind of rollout that would happen when a lot of dance records would cross over to um pop so they got to give it up to shannon and um but you know she was also one of those people if we're talking about early talents in the genre she was also one of those people that really um got burned because what do they do when somebody like if there's a brand new genre of something and somebody's really hot in that what does record companies back in the day want to do? Take that person from the genre and make them more pop and do some simple pop shit, not realizing that the core of that person, you know, they're, they're taking away the core of that person's authenticity. And that's exactly what happened to Shannon. But, um, you know, shout out to her. Her records aren't online. Her records aren't streaming, but I think she's re-recorded them all or something like that. I don't I just fuck with the originals, but and then number three, a lot of people don't know her. I stand for her so hard. She made three back-to-back classics that just you know, if you're talking about 80s dance music to me, you're taught this is like just um examples of the best. And that's Vicky Love, who um sang with um Nuance. I don't know. It was like it was like Mark Hammonds and Ron Dean Miller. You know, it's like studio shit. People getting stuff together and whatever. But those records and her vo- vocals on that. We're talking about "Take a Chance." We're talking about "Love a Ride," and we're talking about "Stop Playing on Me." And it's just you know just that sort of that sophisticated you know but kind of hard and street New York sound of a vocalist. You know, kind of like um, 
sort of like the way Melissa Morgan sounds and some, you know, just kind of like, just savvy, just uptown chicks that know shit and, you know, whatever, and just badass, you know, and she um, really delivered that. I don't know what happened to her because they released the album. And again, for y'all dance music fans, you know how disappointed this kind of is. They released the album. It didn't really have any good additional jams on it. Everything on the album was like a radio edit. So who cares? And unfortunately, that's the last time um, I heard from her. Moving on to number two, and that is one of my favorite vocalists of all time. Again, one of those like New York singer-singers. I mean, you go back through the 80s and you look at any big album that was produced in some part um, in one of the big New York studios, and you're going to see Miss Audrey Wheeler singing on the backgrounds. It's just what it is. It's just who she was. She just ran that New York background-ish like that. And you might know her from Unsung now because she's married to um, Will Downing. But she just had this way, like she could just do a lyric and just the kind of breathiness of it, but the soulfulness of it. So I couldn't even figure out which song to put by her. So I put two. I put Reach Out, Everlasting Lover, and um, Dancing on the Fire. And her version is the only version of that I acknowledge. So, And then at number one, um, this record is so important to who I am. Cause y'all are music lovers like me, so we're not, you know, we're not talking about just we're not talking about just stuff we listen to, right? Like when we talk about music, we're talking about something that sort of um, it helps us define ourselves, right? And then it also allows us to tap into certain experiences, and it's and in some cases even the music can help us grow, right? Like it might be something we don't take to at once or understand, but we stay with it. And then we kind of, we grow as people, maybe in our emotional range of how we understand lyrics or something like that, that makes us think of different perspectives and we grow that way. Maybe we just like sonically, it just expands, you know, our parameters. Um, So it's just so important. I almost think like sometimes listening to a range of music, you know how people say, you know, you should travel, like um, Diana Vreeland used to always say the eye has to travel in order to, you know, she was a famous fashion editor and she was talking about like for photographers and stuff. I haven't been the biggest traveler in my life, but I do feel like there's something to be said for kind of being exposed to different types of things. And I think um, probably the the deepest way I've done that is through music. But I'm going wrong way too long for this one thing. Number one is Jenny Burton. And I put on the website, Remember What You Like, which is from one of my Desert Island downloads. If I had, to, you know, if I had like one little good, you know, they had the download coupons, a little business card. Or if I just had one time to call Alexa across the sea and be like, Alexa, Alexa. One of the albums I would call for would be Jenny Burton's um, In Black and White. Because that song just, I mean, every, when I say it makes me feel like a teenager, it's not in a superficial way. It's not like, you know, some kind of like corny 1950s rock around the clock type shit. Or even some like, you know, prom scene from a John Hughes film or something like that. But just kind of talking about just the way the music made me feel. Um, just like raging hormones, you know, horny 
more than a little angry, just that shit, you know, but just that whole thing about just being filled with possibilities and just really feel like, you know, like the world was kind of being created for you or that you really could have a hand in creating that world. And I don't think that, I don't think that that power ever ends, but I think what happens is we can get disconnected from it. So that's why songs like that are important for me to remind myself, like, hey, you really can still do this shit, you know? So that's my freestyle update for the week. I wanted to get into some Tina Marie, but I'm not going to have y'all here for hours on end. So we'll talk about Tina. Um, we'll, Because I had some Tina comments, I mean, some responses to some Tina comments people had made and stuff like that. So moving on right quick to the current stuff I'm into. Of course, I'm listening to the, my fave, Shaka, and her new album. I mean, you know, I, I mean, you know, you know, I mean, you know how it is, you know, I'm, you know how it is with the faves. It's like she's, I, she's back, you know. The music is current sounding. She looked good. She got a good video. Somebody's putting money into it. So I'm, I'm nothing but happy about it, you know. So I'm not. It's not a. It's not even a diss type type thing. I want her to thrive. I wanted to make a lot of money. She can do her little tour with Michael McDonald. Do your thing. I'm always supportive. Now, the two songs that I'm particularly into that I listen to are um, Like a Lady and Don't You Know. Because to me, those two are like the most organic fusions of what she's known for with, I don't know, whatever they dance into overseas, whatever. <laughs> Whatever some of that stuff is, but you got, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, it, but it's good. Shoot, if it's moving units, it's moving units. You know, if she likes it, I love it. But um, it's those two that I think for me are the um, best, you know, because some of them songs, I don't even call this particular song. One of them songs, like, song was over. I hardly knew the songs again. I was still waiting for the the the, the lyrics. <laughs> I'm waiting for a verse to come in and and I'm hearing a fade. So but whatever, you know, we need to we need to we need to support the legends. We need to support the legends making new music. And if they come out with something that really does sound contemporary then I think we have to applaud them. Like the shock, I think it sounds very contemporary. It sounds like a lot of them dance peoples that y'all be liking and that be all on the award shows and collaborating people that I don't give a about. But it does sound like that for me. So that's something to be said to remain current like that. I don't necessarily fuck with this album in the same way that I don't fuck with those people, but it's not like I'm not fucking with it because it is, it's old sounding. You know what I mean? It's just, it's not particularly my shit. So, but y'all know what I've been getting into lately, and y'all know this is not me because I can be very sometimey about pop music. I mean, I can go for a whole year without listening to anything that would be categorized under the pop genre and does not really give a fuck. But I'm really, really into the um, New Year's and Year's video with M-N-E-K, Valentino. I really think it's cute. Um, Ollie's cute from years and years, so I really like that. So that's on my little pop playlist, you know. Get a good little um five mile run that comes on, and then but the song I'm really loving um is 
Permission by New Hope Club. They're a British boy band. I know they've been around for years, but I didn't know who the fuck they were until they showed up in my Discover on IG. I thought they looked cute, so I listened to the goddamn song. That's the beginning and end of it. But it's a little bop. Like, I really, really like Like, I really be playing it. And, um, you know, this is one of those songs. Y'all know what I like, little teenage rebellion songs. So it's like, they're like, we don't need permission for nothing. Touch like you want to be touched. Kiss like you want to be kissed. Drank like you want to be drunk. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Feel like you want to feel something. I mean, those are lyrics I can get behind. But some cute-ass boys singing it too. And then, you know, if that's not rebellious enough, then they get to the bridge and they're like, we can stay up all night if we want to. Take off our clothes if we want to. I do not mind if you do. <laughs> so, like I said, I've been very into And the video is cute and everything. So... That's my little, I don't think any pleasure, this world is too short on pleasures to be guilty about shit. But that's my little, I, I mean, I'll be playing it. So um, TV, I, I've been kind of behind on all my stuff this week, but um, I'm still liking American Soul, y'all. Um, I'm about a week behind, but I think the female characters are really strong. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. But I do think, like, I can see why some people aren't into it because it does have those sort of, like, kind of abstract kind of artsy madman elements and so you know i get it but i like it so and then uh, i really like boomerang the first two episodes you know it was definitely better than that trash movie that it inspired it and i know that's an unpopular opinion i know it's not really like that's not an opinion that's that unpopular but i know it's an unpopular opinion somewhat so we can get into it later if need be about how much i hate that film um but speaking of films, let's get into this. Um, let's get into this conversation with Essex um, about Paris is Burning, and like I said, this happened in 1992. And I just this is you know, he's one of those people. You don't necessarily have to know somebody like a long time, but. I mean, I knew him for, you know, like a few years when he was in D.C. right before he took off, where he was really just on the speaking circuit and all this kind of stuff and then all these films. And then he moved um, from D.C. Um, to Philadelphia. And so then we kind of lost contact. I mean, last time I saw him was in a bathroom at a conference where we were both speaking at. It was called Black Nations, Queer Nations. Um, it was in New York. It's, I think it was at SUNY. But, um, or is it CUNY? What do you say when it's with the C? Whatever. It's, you know, it was a really seminal um, conference. But, you know, we were just in bad. So I was, we hugged and everything like that. But it was just thinking that that was the last time I saw somebody. It's just kind of strange. But um, this was written in his Washington Post obituary. And I thought that that really summed up um, sort of his importance um, to my life. E. Miller wrote, Essex was responsible not simply for opening doors, but for rearranging the furniture, telling us how... Y'all, do you know I wrote the damn quote wrong? Hold on. Okay, I'm going to reread it. Um, and forgive me for fucking up your shit, Essex. Um, Essex was responsible not simply for opening doors, but for rearranging the furniture, telling us how we could be comfortable with our many selves. That is the effect that he had on my life that can't be 
um, can't be overestimated. Like, because I met him at a time, it was very early coming out, you know, and I mean, it was probably like in the first, literally, it could have been like maybe in the first couple of weeks or months, he just happened to be having a reading and I just happened to show up to it and it was just me and one other guy. So we just talked and like that whole idea of rearranging selves. You know, I know a lot of people, especially black gay men, um, a lot of um, gay men of color have struggled with, you know, with the racial identity and fusing that with this and fusing family. And it was kind of like I had much less of a struggle with that. And and looking back, I think it's because, you know, it's the rearranging furniture. I think I met like the dopest interior designer of the soul possible. You know what I mean? Because he made everything made sense to me. He told me what to read. He told me to, the acceptance that he gave me right off the bat was just so all-encompassing. And um, and just accepting, like, just the, the vibes people give you. You know, like, I never felt, even when I was saying dumb shit, because, you know, I was young, I didn't know shit. But, you know, just whatever, like, he was just very accepting, very welcoming. You know, of course, he edited the book, um, after Joseph Beam couldn't do it brother to brother, but that is truly the way that it felt. It felt like with him, it was always just on that level. It was always just on the level of one black man just accepting and communicating with another black man. And we each trying to, you know, make each other better. And like he's, and he was like a mentor, but never making me feel less than or feel like I had to prove anything to um, deserve his mentorship if that makes sense. But I'm going on, and I will go on more in the future as I um, sort of digitize the tape. And I put a copy of the article that I wrote about him that's on the website. But anyway, I'm just going to play this part of, um, of us talking about Paris is Burning, and I hope you guys like it. Okay. So let's face it, um, black fag life is very much in vogue right now. Right. Um, and I think Marlon hit that on the head very clearly that's why i said black fag life mm -hmm. which i think is different from a black gay life um which is still probably different from a black homosexual life i think that the society the popular culture might be more tolerant of the spectacle mm -hmm. of our lives right. as opposed to the real as opposed to dealing um, with the substance of our lives. Um, because I didn't want to posit spectacle as though it's not real. There yeah, is spectacle right. mm -hmm. in, in black gay experience, black gay culture, there is spectacle. Mm -hmm. But that's but one aspect. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, it's, it's more the... Um, it's a more inflamed aspect, if you will, because of spectacle, you see. Um, but this, the, the nuts and bolts of what black gay people have to contend with day after day, that seems to be what the society has a lot of trouble dealing with. Um, Keeping in mind with Paris is burning. Because mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways there, if you look at it, you have the spectacle. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of have a lot of pain, mm -hmm. you know, sort of 
the once, flip side when the makeup is going on. But see, but the thing, but you never. But I'm trying to go back through the film and see. I mean, there are traces that the beauty comes through, but in a way, you can sort of. You can see a lot of aspects of the spectacle pushed to its extreme as mm -hmm. being sort of empty mm -hmm. in the ultimate context. I think the way that you, um, in your piece, To Be Real, talked about how it was empowering and there was a sort of beauty in the transformative um, aspect saying, I can do this, and the part where they said, I could be a businessman if I look like mm -hmm. one. And that's certainly true in American society. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. But it's you can still, that's not an ultimate empowerment. And then you have sort of the painful aspect of when Dorian Corey, um, you know, just putting on her makeup throughout the entire <laughs> film and... Um, it's a lot of makeup. So, I was, so, I was, so again, I've had to reconsider my opinion on that film every time I've seen it and many other times just thinking back on it and I don't know if maybe that calls for a rereading too as far as what was put in and what was omitted. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Well see, there, you know, there's all the charges of Jenny being an ethnographer and Jenny's background being called into question and her being, you know, from a family of money and she's mm -hmm. white and she's a Jew and she's a lesbian and, you know, all these sorts of things. And um, I've asked people, well, who would be the ideal person to do the film? Right. Okay, and I had one person say, well, someone from that community. And I said, well, then let's talk about access. Right. Let's talk exactly. about the real deal. Right. Who in that community? Who's going to get together with the video cam? Dig it. Okay. Exactly. Who has access in that community to a studio? <laughs> the kids are lifting designer gowns <laughs> so that they can walk and feel good about themselves. Right. Okay. So I. It's that's again that the complexity of the gray, mm -hmm. the black and the white is something else, but it's the complexity of the gray, and there's a lot of gray tone emanating from that film, even though it's a color film. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of gray in there, and that's because um, I think these ball walkers, the members of this ball community, represent and are living so many different intersections. Right. You know, intersections around um, boring identity and race and class mm -hmm. and sexuality. You see um, gender issues even. Um, so it's not, it's too easy to dismiss or attempt to dismiss the film or its significance around Jenny's identity. Right, right, exactly. I think that's um, a failure even to really examine the issues that are laid out. I think that there is a clear articulation that emerges. Surely um, for um, film buffs and people who are filmmakers, there are other kinds of issues around um, technical things mm -hmm. that I'm not necessarily versed in to speak about, but as someone who was able to locate himself in that particular experience, mm -hmm. which I was able to do, which I think um, allowed for me to not play this role of being the dispassionate 
dispassionate observer, but that I could see myself there, that I could identify what category I would walk in, which mm -hmm. queen first time in drags at the ball. I mean, right. it's, yeah. th it made me aware of, even within what we would call then a black gay community or gay and lesbian or lesbian and gay communities of color, that there are still other communities yeah. within all of that. That's, mm -hmm. And that was one very important thing among many important things, I thought that the members of the community articulated themselves very well. Mm -hmm. um, I think, though, that the spectacle seduced maybe some audiences to just um, take the humor from it mm -hmm. and not meditate and resonate on the significance of key things that were pointed out, right. articulations from the intersections mm -hmm. where these men found themselves at times. Um, I don't know what was left out, mm -hmm. you know. I know what's there is a very powerful statement. Mm -hmm. or, uh, there are very powerful statements, statements yeah. actually. That's part of that, again, that complexity. Right. Sorry about that. I might actually have to be, this might have to be the first um, one of these things that I edit. I was, sorry. But anyway, um, you know what I was doing? I was make. I, I was looking again, making sure that this took place in um, 1992. Because you really can tell the difference in the language and just kind of, I mean, I've certainly evolved in my thinking, but I also think that... Um, the ball community has involved so, evolved so much in being able to articulate the issues around um, gender and sexuality and class and everything like that. So, you know, I feel our conversation is very, is as empathetic it is, it does kind of have a tone of like, you know, kind of, I guess, feeding into the ethnographic elements of the film and kind of like we're looking at where I think... Um, that's a very different experience now, but I mean, you just can't even, at the time we were talking about that, we couldn't even imagine a world where like Pose existed. Do you know what I mean? So it's just um, very, very different. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I certainly enjoyed making it for you, um, the show. And I just want to leave you as always. Um, I'm gonna try to do something technical. Let me see if I can get this right. Y'all still hear me? Let me see. Yeah, y'all can still hear me. Okay. So, um, about to do, I'm about to do some audio trickery on y'all. But anyway, um, I really, again, thank you for rocking with me. Like, it really does make my day. Like, when you all, you know, uh, tweet me something or just whatever about something I'm talked about in the podcast or something like that. It's, I, I love it. So, thank you for that. And as usual, as I sign off, be cool, be kind, be creative. And in the words of my fave, be your damn self. <laughs> Y'all ain't work. Why the fucking ain't work? Or did it work and I just had the volume down? <laughs> okay. See, that's what I'm talking about. Sometimes you just need to keep it real. I'm not trying to be anything I'm not. Look, I, you know, I'm not Mike Dean behind this motherfucker. I'm just, just me and my laptop. So again, let's let's take two.
Okay, so be cool, be kind, be creative, and in the words of my fave, damn you, I done fucked it up again. Yo. Okay, here we go. Okay, take three. Well, the thanks, y'all know how I feel about the thanks, so we keep that. But again, be cool, be kind, be creative. And in the words of my fave, be your damn self. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. And I can't wait um, to get, bring more to you. And I love y'all. And I am out.